We have all heard the analogy that we must prepare for spiritual combat the same way we prepare for physical combat. But how many of us have actually ever trained for physical combat? Perhaps you like the thought of getting into jujitsu or mixed martial arts, but you don't know where to begin. We meet today with the legendary El Guapo himself, once spoken of as the world's greatest martial artist. To discuss this and more, stay with us. Welcome, gentlemen, to an episode I'm especially excited about. Today, we are joined by the legendary fighter, Boss Rutten. Uh, and before we get to that, though, I do want to encourage everyone who's listening uh, to support us on Patreon. Um, producing high-quality content like this isn't free, and we want uh, uh, to continue to do this. So please uh, provide your support at patreon.com slash Catholic Gentlemen. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated. As I said, I'm especially excited about today's episode. Uh, we're joined today by the legendary UFC uh, and kickboxing champion, Boss Rutten. Uh, Boss, I'm just going to give a brief introduction to you. Uh, you're the three-time King of Pancrase world champion. Uh, you're a UFC heavyweight champion formerly and a UFC Hall of Famer. And you finished your career with a 22-fight unbeaten streak which is almost unheard of hmm. uh ufc uh official statistics uh organization fight metric that said that when you got put in the ufc hall of fame i love this the statistics provided by the ufc ran the numbers on boss Rutten's career they back up the dutchman's inclusion into the ufc hall of fame and then some in the four hours and 27 minutes and eight seconds he spent as a pro fighter Rutten scored 13 knockdowns without getting dropped once himself. And his strike accuracy was 70.6%, the highest fight metric has ever recorded. Uh, so just unbelievable fight career. I remember when I was first getting into mixed martial arts uh, in late high school and college, I remember watching some of your just unbelievable knockouts. Some of them were incredibly fast. Uh, you were an inspiration to me then, and then little did I know that uh, years later we'd get to know each other and come to find out you're also uh, a devout Catholic and you practice your faith. So welcome so much, uh, or welcome, boss. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy how God put things together, right? Because I was completely out of the faith, and then I got pulled back. In like 2013, 14. Yeah. Yes, and uh, that's a great story. If anyone is interested in, in kind of uh, reading a little bit of that journey, um, there's a great article, a, a written interview I did with, with Boss on the Catholic Gentleman website called The Faith of a Fighter. Um, and it's, it's a really incredible story. So maybe we'll hear a little bit more about that uh, as the show goes on. Um, but uh, needless to say, you're a guy that, that uh, we, no one would want to pick on in, in a bar fight or something like that. <laughs> they, would, they would regret it. Uh, but but how did you? Just to get things started, how did you get? How did you get into fighting? Um, you know, I I was very sick as a kid. I had a horrible skin disease and I had severe asthma. 
And uh, mm. the horrible skin disease was over my head. I had to wear gloves. It was on my arms, it was on my neck and my ears. Uh, so needless to say, I was the leper in school, something I hated at that time when they would call me that. But now it's in the mm. Bible, so I'm kind of good with it. Mm. And uh, <laughs> so but bullied on a daily basis. And uh, just seeing a Bruce Lee movie when I was 12, asking my parents if I could start training because I realized that if I would be like Bruce Lee, the bullying would stop. And it uh, took me two years to convince them. They finally allowed me. And then everything went just really fast. I like in, uh, in two and a half months, I was beating the adults. I was training with the adults. Somebody took me to adult classes. And uh, not all the adults, of course, but the, the, the not so good guys I was beating. But still, I was a kid. And then I overheard these guys talk about me in the dressing room. Man, that kid is really good. Did you see him? He dropped so-and-so and everybody was laughing. So now I started listening to the adults instead of kids and realizing, hey, wait a minute, maybe I do have some talent. And then I got into a fight with the biggest bully in school. And I knocked him out, about one punch. He asked me. It hit me. Come on, leper, hit me. So I, I did. And I just was obliging. <laughs> and that was it. The bullying stopped right away. They say, oh, they always say, don't. You know, if I do anti-bullying campaigns, people are talking about that. Yeah, but you can't say that. I say, but then I'm not going to say anything. I say, I'm mm. either going to say that or not, because it's the only thing that works for me. Try me. I tried talking. But those guys, they talk a different language. And guess what? This is their language. And, watch, and, and that guy, by the way, he never bullied anymore. You know, so I kind of helped him if you really think yeah. about it. <laughs> so fact. what did he do? He stopped bullying altogether? If I'm sorry? It wasn't he didn't just bully you anymore. It was he stopped bullying altogether? Pretty much. So so poor guy probably who, who didn't hear about the story who tried something and I would not get him out. You know, so once the story went around, people yeah, they they stopped bullying me. And then I had a list because now I got confident. And now I made a list with all the guys that wow. have done things to me. And I start going, I start literally scratching off every single name on it. That's, now when I think about it, there were some guys who say, please, I don't even remember saying it. I say, I'm sorry, I, I remember like yesterday. And then bonk, I would just hit them. And so it, how do I say, um, when there's like school shootings and stuff like that, and you hear about kids being bullied, and yes, of course, it's 100% wrong. It's really wrong. I can understand it, though. I can really understand it. I had a moment in my life uh, when I was 12, and I, I saw someone in a movie, a Tarzan movie or whatever it was. I get into a fight. They speak in a fight of me. And I see a branch hanging from a tree. And I want to grab the branch and then swing like in the movies and kick him in the chest that I saw Batman do or whatever. Mm. And, uh, of course, the branch <laughs> broke. I fell on the ground and everybody's laughing. And that was, I ran home. And our home was like a quarter mile away from, from the school. And I went to the kitchen, grabbed the kitchen knife and started running back. And I remember my mom saw me on the street to the front window and she started running after me and she caught, caught up to me and she, she took the knife away. Until this day, I don't know what I would have done, but I was in such a state, I think I would have stabbed them. It was so, so I can understand. Mm -hmm. That's what I always say to the police. I say, watch out because you're going to meet guys like me, not like with the knife, but who's going to make a list and they're going to say, oh, I'll get you. You know, it takes a few years, but I'll be back at you. Don't worry about it. You know, and then you have the worst situations, you know, bullying, there's still words that can trigger me to get angry. And this, we're talking 40, 45 years or 40 years ago, at least. You see what I mean? So, and I'm, I'm dealing with it. And it's because I worked with it, I, it does, nothing happens. But it, this, words are so, ooh, are everything. I'd rather have a beating than get name calling as a kid. You know, it's the worst thing. So, uh, yeah, watch out, people. Stop bullying. It's an annoying thing. Yeah. I agree. I, a lot of things pop through my head. I think of uh, John Eldridge. I remember hearing him say, uh, you know, in order to turn uh, the cheek, you have to know that you have a cheek to turn. 
And the point there was standing up for yourself, you know, that uh, that ability to defend against yourself is so important, especially as us as men, you know, providers and protectors um, and trying to work towards that and, uh, and and kind of focus our minds and and, and thoughts towards that. That's uh yeah, it's interesting. Stop bullying. Yeah, I agree. And uh, um, I can't imagine uh, meeting you a couple of years later uh, after, you know, some flippant comment <laughs> and, and then uh, yeah. suffering the wrath. Um, so uh, anyway, so, so I appreciate What would you say to a kid who's, who's getting bullied right now? It's hard, you know. I uh, The first thing I would say... Um, is that just know that these guys, their glory years are the years in school. Because most of the time, and it's just tested, these guys are not the brightest bulbs, you know? So they're not going to go anywhere. They're going to be the guys with the bad jobs and, you know, that, or, or they're not going to go anywhere. So just know that, that eventually your payback will come. It's very rare that a smart kid bullies. You see what I mean? Because they can understand situations. And mm-hmm. what they also have to understand is, like, looking back on it, like the guy I knocked out the first time, I know it was a really bad family. His brother was in jail. He was, like, 17, but he was already in jail for robbery. And it, So they just came from a bad family. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's going on at home. If dad decides to hit mother all day long, then it becomes normal for them. Oh, this is how we solve the problem, you see. And so so most of the time it's hard to say, but that's now because I got back to Catholicism. I go, like, yeah, just think about the bully. What You don't know what's going on at home for him as well you know now the best thing is of course if something happens to just run away and get an adult that's what you need to do but unfortunately all the kids see that as a weakness well getting beat up that's also a weakness i wouldn't do that because otherwise they're going to bring a weapon to school that was a baseball bat or whatever it is so mm. you know know that it's only four years that's about it and uh and know that there's something going on with the bully because nobody in the right state of mind would act like that and get an adult Get somebody you trust. Maybe if you're in the family, you have a person like me or a guy who does uh, uh, martial arts or whatever it is, and you can bring them. You know, for me, if bullying happens here, I bring students. You know, and if they're 15 or 17-year-old kids, I'll bring 12-year-old students. Oh, you want to go? Yeah, he's 12 years old. He's four years younger than you. Good luck. <laughs> That's not going to work. You see what I mean? So I can always play that card, but thankfully, I never have to play that card. So that's great. I mean, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Now, you started, you said you when you were 14, and then did you just uh, continue on this trajectory? What brought you from, you know, because uh, I believe in in that article that Sam was referring to, you mentioned kind of falling away from the faith because your parents stopped practicing, you know, when you were around 12. So the faith wasn't a big part of your life at this point, but um, going back to fighting and your career here, you started at 14 and then what got you into that next level? What got you into deciding to choose fighting as a career and, uh, and pursuing that? All pure luck, all pure God willing, God directing this whole thing. Never expect. I was a cook. I'm a chef, a French chef. That's my profession. I used to be modeling, but when I had hair, you know, the complete opposite, but I always loved martial arts. So once I moved out, of, first of all, when I knocked out the bully, my parents took me off of, uh, of, of, of martial arts because they, they always said it was violence. That they did, that's why it took me two years to convince them. And then this was the confirmation. Now, I never told my parents that I was bullied since my mother had a lot of work with me. She had to put bandages around me every single day and cover and, and, and creams. I would rip that off in the middle of the night because it would itching. I would, she had to do it again. I mean, this went on for years. Asthma attacks, a week in bed, have to do everything in bed, not able to eat because she can't breathe. You know, this is not a <laughs> little cough. No, this is, 
24-7 for seven, eight days straight, you know. So there was a whole different level. So once I started growing out of it a little bit and then I was 20 years old and I moved out of the house, that's when I immediately started going back to martial arts. But also in the years that were leading up to, now I had the taste, of course. Just now I watch Bruce Lee movies, I watch karate books, whatever, and I start learning from books. I start kicking mm-hmm. the air. Everybody thought I was already a black belt because I could kick you in front of your face. I could hold my foot in front of your face because I just was practicing a lot. But I wasn't a fighter at all. But then at 20, I started training, and then it went really fast. You know, I just... I, I, I never had a yellow belt. I always skipped right away to orange in, in both Taekwondo and, and I did this in, uh, in karate as well. And uh, and then once I was doing karate, I realized it was not full contact. There was no punches to the face. Like I wanted to do full contact. So like a year in there, I started doing Thai boxing on the side, started competing really fast, like within three months, winning a lot of fights by knockout also. You know, so yeah, that's how it kind of started. And then I took a fight uh, that I didn't even remember of taking because I was drunk when I took it. And it was the guy who was training in prison, uh, Frank Lotman, the animal, that was his nickname, and which is undefeated guy, 30, 43 fights, I think 39 or 38 knockouts, like an animal. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to fight him because he was going to come out of prison, he needed a fighter. And I said, sure, but I had no clue. So they called me uh, like months later and they said, hey, what do we do? Do we send the posters to? I said, what posters? And they go from the fight. I said, who's fighting? You. I go, me? Who's fighting? Uh, Frank Lotman. <laughs> I get the animal. I go, yeah. I go, when did I say that? He goes, well, on New Year's Eve. And I started thinking, and I go, oh, yeah, I met the promoter. But I didn't train for three years. I was a bouncer. I worked at 5 o'clock in the morning. And that would mean at 5 o'clock, we're done. And then we go to the after parties. And you only know what's at the after parties, right? You got to stay awake. Let's do coke. Let's do drinking. Let's do women. That, everything bad goes at this uh, after party. So I wasn't really nothing in shape. And I asked him, I said, when is the fight? And they go, I think it was it was less than three weeks. And I go, yeah. okay, uh, I'll take it because I gave him my word. I'm a man of my word. Idiot, I should have never taken it. So unfortunately, the fr- it, it didn't go well for me. I lost that fight. <laughs> and uh, But there's a whole bunch of reasons there. They said I got hit, knocked out, and never been knocked out. And you can actually see me talking while I'm t- talking to the corner. But it doesn't really matter. I always said, because at that moment, suddenly I became the worst fighter in Japan, uh, in, in Holland. So uh-huh. they forgot about my nine knockouts, one in the second round, the rest all in the first round. And suddenly I'm the worst guy there is. And I thought it was, that, that, that hurt me, that people were like that. So I said, I will never fight in Holland again. And then I met my wife in 92, and she looks at me really weird, and she tells me, hey, you're going to be a famous fighter in Japan. I go, what do you mean? She says, I, I said, I told you I'm not going to fight anymore. She said, yeah, but she said, Holland, you're going to go to Japan. Oh, whatever, you know, whatever. but that's a weird thing to say. And then a year later, they uh, contacted me. Somebody called me and I had to do a tryout in Amsterdam. I wasn't doing martial arts. I just started Thai boxing again. And then uh, I went to the tryout and it was for a new organization called Pancras. And they were scouting and I got into a fight with one of the champions from the gym and I knocked him out because he tried to knock me out. And that was it. You know, they, they, they were pointing at me. And then two, three months later, I think I was in Japan fighting September 21st in 1993. This was before the UFC started. UFC started in November. We started in September there. And uh, and that was it, man. It, it was the, the wildest. Listen, we travel, we drive everywhere in Holland by car. You know, we go to Paris. That's a four-hour car ride. I'm here. I'm in Vegas. You know, you want to go. So I've never been on a plane. Now I'm suddenly 13 hours on the plane to Japan. And if you come from Holland, you go to Japan. It's like from going from Holland to New York. I mean, everything is big. I mean, you have no clue what you're seeing. And then the Japanese people, <clears throat> such a nice people. I'm facing this Japanese guy 
<clears throat> funny story also, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about the rounds. I thought it were five rounds or three minutes, just like in Thai boxing. Yeah. And there were weight classes. And there was no way in the day before, which I thought it was odd, but I go, hey, you know, I'm fighting a Japanese guy. They're known for being honest. So I'm pretty sure he's going to be a weight. So the next day I went over there and this tall Japanese guy walks up to me and he shakes my hand and says, oh, are you the promoter? He says, no, I'm fighting you today. I go, are you fighting me? He goes, what's your weight? And he goes like, I was at 225 or so. It's like 35 pounds heavier than I was. And I go, it, okay. Uh, and then the promoter walked up and I go to the promoter. Are you the promoter? Yeah. I said, is he not too heavy? He says, no, Mr. Wooden. We fight everybody. You know, there's no weight class. I go, oh, great. Great. So I tried to force a smile. And then I asked him, how many rounds are we fighting? He goes, one. I go, great. How many minutes? He goes, 30. I go, great. <laughs> you know, but right. I go, 30 minutes. This is crazy. Everything went well. I mean, I knocked him out with a beautiful high kick um, uh, and a palm strike. And I need this job because he was taller than me, so it was perfect. And and that's where the people, I mean, they embraced me. It was the wildest. I, they put a baby in my hand, a couple. You know, I felt like the president there with the baby making pictures. And how would they, I mean, do that in Holland? You're going to need security to get out of the place if you're a foreigner, you beat up a nice guy. You see? So, uh, yeah, that was wild. And the next day, walking on the street and people start bowing at me, like one every 10 people or so, every 15 people, but they were bowing. I go, what is going on? And then I saw the newspaper and on the cover was me hanging in the splits, which I didn't even remember doing because after the fight, I was so excited. It was 43 seconds. I just jumped in the splits to all the corners. I used to do that as a kid for fun, you know, to show off. And somehow yeah. I did it after the fight, but I had no recollection of doing that. And you saw me hanging in the air with the opponent below me knocked out. And I go, ah, okay. So that's how these people recognize me. And that was it. Was that, you know? was that this? That, that was that jump. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The iconic Very move. Nice. Yeah. And then it started. That's when the career all took off. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> incredible. Uh, so how many how many fights do you remember? How many fights you had in uh, Pancrase? Um, I think 33, something like that. Wow, well, yeah. And it was fast. Really? So, I was the striker, you know. So I, I came in as a striker, but then losing my submission got really, I got fed up. And my last loss was against Ken Shamrock uh, by a knee bar, which is a, is a lag lock. It's a very painful. And that was it. I told myself, okay, it's either I'm going to change now or I'm, I'm going to quit. It's one of the mm. two. But I never wanted to learn the ground. I thought it was for sissies. I, I was an idiot. But hey, then I start, I had to, I start forcing myself. And then suddenly I realized all the possibilities and the power that you have. I mean, I, it's it's worse than striking. I mean, mm. I can dislocate any joint in your body and I can break pretty much any bone in your body. And not only me, every submission guy can do that. So that's a big power to have, you know? So then I started combinations and, and the, the lead-ups and, and finding different setups and, and I became obsessed with it. And my poor wife, I will wake her up in the middle of the night because I would dream of submission. I will wake her up, put her in that submission. Ask her when to <laughs> oh yeah, and this happened a bunch of times. Write it down next day to the class and I would do it in class. You know, it was, the whole house was little post-its and combinations, but you know, like anything else, you know, you do something, once you fall in love with it, you do it a lot. I start yeah, doing it two, three times a day. And, mm -hmm. and that's it. I never lost a fight again. I actually, after my, after my last submission loss, I won my next eight fights by way of submission. They were like wow. freaking out in Japan. They say, what, what's going on here? But wow. I was just spending a lot of time on the ground. I forgot about striking. I just did the tie pads for stamina. And for the sparring, I didn't even spar striking anymore. Nobody was going to stand with me anyway. I was just going to focus only on the ground. 
And it completely changed my career, made me who I was, uh, who I am and who I was and am. <laughs> so, wow. wow. Yeah. That's so cool. So let's talk about fighting in general, because often it gets, uh, well, it gets a very bad rap from uh, people on any stripe, right? So you get the you get the pacifists who uh, just think it's never justifiable, even in the case of defense, right? But not even talking about them, just people who are listening to this and maybe have um, never really thought about the balance of, of fighting in general and the art form of it or the sport that it is. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, kind of set the record straight about what fighting is and maybe what fighting is not um, with uh, UFC and that which you were involved in. Fighting is trying to find <clears throat> a flaw in your opponent's game, just like you do with chess, just like you're, you're just, just testing each other's skills. We're both guys with the same skills who signed up, and I just believe that I'm better than you, and I'm going to see if I can catch you with something. And he does the same thing with me. <clears throat> there is zero violence going on. Actually, violence during fighting is the worst thing that you can have That because mm. that's emotions. Once you let your emotions go, you start loading punches up, you start telegraphing. That's, you want to stay far away from that. Some fighters fight like that. Most of the time, those are, those are not the champions. Mm. Very rarely. The, ver the, the, the animosity you see on TV, 95% is fake. I mean, they just hype it up. These guys, these guys love each other. I can go anywhere on the planet without buying a hotel. I, I just need a plane. I land somewhere because I know everybody now. And I say, hey, man, I'm over here. Can I sleep for a few nights at your place? I guarantee you they would allow me to go and stay a night in our home <clears throat> because it's such a camaraderie. We all went through the same thing. We all go through the injuries and the training and the food that you, you can't do certain things. It's, it's a freaking military-style training, and, and you just yeah. respect the other person for that as well. So for us, it's literally like shooting hoops. You know, it's the same thing for us. You know, and especially, yeah, some guys, they lose control sometimes because they're not completely under control. But you never see, if I hit somebody who's out, I won't even walk over there to give him another punch. You know, my last fight, I had that with a low kick and he went down. And then uh, the referee says, oh, fight. And I'm standing, I, I, I go, you know, I, I walked over. I think I'm going to choke him then. I'm not going to hit this guy because he was on his knees, you know. So, but then they, they, they stopped the fight, you see. So real animosity is not there. We are literally just testing our skills and to see who's the best. That day. And we get paid for it. What better way to have a life, right? <laughs> for us, at least. <laughs> from the outside, it looks really bad. I understand that also. Yeah. But to me, from the outside, is um, guys on the motorcycle who make three backflips. You see, I think that's dangerous compared yeah. to what we're doing. Climbing high buildings and, and doing all these crazy things and flying through very close to the, with a bat suit, uh, you know, out of a plane, you jump. And you see, that stuff, I think is crazy and very dangerous. What we do is not dangerous because our opponent is right in front of us. And, and that's it. And he has the same skills as you. With good matchmaking, there will be not a problem. Yeah, if, if you are set up and you're a nobody and they put you against somebody who's like 20 and 0, that's a problem. But with good matchmaking, you'll never have that problem. So mm -hmm. it, it looks worse than it is. And blood, blood, I mean, this is much safer than boxing, <clears throat> first of all. They say the little gloves, yeah, but there's a lot of submissions involved as well. And just know that the hand, I always tell this for people who don't understand martial arts, the boxing glove is invented to protect the hand. It's not invented to protect your head. Because now it's way worse. Bare knuckle boxing is actually more healthy for the brain, for CTE-wise, than, than boxing with gloves. Because boxing with gloves, you can hit somebody as hard as you want. You're not going to break your hand. Try to hit somebody with these little tiny boats. If you hit my in my face, I just do this and I catch you on my forehead, your hand's gone. That's it. 
You just lost the fight. So bare knuckle boxing, you see these guys a lot go to the body and they go, they take it easy on their hand, uh, on the hand because otherwise they break their hand and it can't, the next fight they can't fight because they broke their hand. You see, so there's a whole misconception from people. Once you break everything down, it's really not that bad. And, and a little cut, I'd rather have that than I have a concussion. You yeah. see what I mean? And that's what bare knuckle boxing, yeah, you bleed a lot. But once you wipe the cut, you see how many times you see a person going back to the corner full of blood and then you wipe, boop, 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 and you don't see anything. It's just a little cut, and your heart rate's 150, 160 beats a minute. Yeah, it's going to come out. Of course it's going to come out. But it doesn't do anything to the brain. It just looks bad. Yeah. Yeah, so it's so not nearly as uh, barbaric as all these people uh, like to think. It's uh, very controlled. Um, referees are there all the time. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, too, like, you have a pretty long career spanning a lot of years. Um, do you have like a, a, a favorite fight or like an, uh, uh, a, a fight that was especially difficult for you, but that was really awesome when you finished it or what, you know, just some, some highlights from your own perspective as a fighter. Um, yeah. Okay. The first fight that I ever had with the bully, that one sticks, tells out, sticks out with me because it was one punch and it surrounded yeah. me with kids, you know, and they don't, so I couldn't run away. And then just one punch, he broke his nose in the process and he was out. And I was like, that was a big thing for me. And it was almost better than winning any world title because that was the moment I stepped up for myself. Then I said, okay, no more. Because they, yeah. they were shouting at me, profanity, whatever. Hey, leper, watch out. Your hands don't fall off or your ears don't fall off. There's something mm. like that. They would always shout. And I shouted something back. And then I saw that we were on a bicycle. They started to chase me. And I got this is it. So I put my bike on the stand. And I said, I'm just going to wait for it. And then they surrounded me with the bikes. And then this whole thing happened. And I knocked them out. And that was, you know, it was the first time I stood up for myself. So that's a big one for me. Yeah. Then I had a rematch against my first loss in Japan was against Funaki Mazukatsu. And he got me in a toe hold. Now, don't let that name fool you. It's not like this is the toe and you got the hold. No, no, no. Okay. I saw somebody break his shin bone with a toe hold. So it's a very gnarly move. So I knew I didn't know what it was because it was early in my career. I knew it hurt, but I didn't know what it was. And then many years later, when I started doing my ground game, I got so much better. I became a champion, and then I had a, a rematch against him. And that fight is considered one of the best fights I ever had, and for him as well. Uh, for him, it didn't go well because um, he can't, he, he, I almost let my emotions go. Uh, he came before, he was a very respectful guy, but somehow I think he hyped the fight, but he did it the wrong way. He comes to me in the, in the corner before the fight in front of everybody, and he's standing this far away and he does this to me. And I go, I look at my man and say, Oh, I'm gonna kill this guy now. I mean, this is insane. He says, You gotta stay calm. I said, Don't worry, I'll stay calm. I said, But you watch once I hit him and he's, he's dizzy, I will go to town. You watch, and that's exactly what happened during the fight. Suddenly, I connected. Uh, he did an illegal move. I was sitting on my knees and he kicked me in the face. I blocked it. And my game plan was going to be because this guy never fought more than 15 minutes. And mm. since we're in a half hour fight, I thought, because every five minutes they announce, I always do something to, to, to mess with your mind. They announce five minutes past, 10 minutes past, 15 minutes past. I thought that if I just don't do anything and hold him off for 15 minutes, and then he hears suddenly this, the voice saying, hey, 15 minutes past, He's going to realize he's never been in that situation yet. Maybe that's going to do something to his psyche. I always try to find weird ways to just throw somebody off a little bit. Mm. But then around 12 minutes, uh, I was sitting on my knees and he kicked me in the face, but I blocked it. But it pissed me off. 
because it was an illegal move. So I get up and I, boom, I knock him out and he falls down. And in, in Pancras, the organization in Japan, there were eight counts. So I drop him, he gets an eight count. Then he comes, he shoots in again. Uh, I sprawl and he rolls on his back. And then I did something I never did before because he was on his back and I hit him in his face, which normally was kind of a gentleman rule not to do. But I still, like I said, I was, I was angry. <clears throat> and that's what snow shows. So when he flat on his face and they come in and they start checking him. And then the guy kept on coming. I mean, I knocked him down five times, uh, four times, and I was getting tired now. And then the final one, because every time when he would go down, the whole audience would go, Funaki, Fu, and then he would get up again. And I go, shut up. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> then the final one was that I grabbed him by the hair. He had a lot of hair. And I grabbed him by the hair and I kneed him in the face as hard as I could. That was it. He, he was he was out. Uh, and that was said. So for me, they always say that was my best fight, but for him as well, because I have no clue how he kept standing. I mean, my I remember my my I was bruised on my palms from the hitting. I was my knees were, had bruises on them from kneeing him in the face. I mean, it was insanity. His nose was flat on his face. He broke both cheekbones. I mean, he just he kept coming back. It was the wildest thing. So that was a tough one. And then the last one I would say was uh, Kevin Randleman, um, who became later a friend of mine. I actually inducted him into the UFC Hall of Fame two weeks ago. Uh, he unfortunately wow. passed away uh, to a pneumonia. Very sad, very sad story. But uh, his wife was uh, very gorgeous because I, I stayed in contact with her and uh, he became good friends. And, but what, what happened was um, the first four minutes, he was a really great wrestler. He took me down and he completely smashed my face. And, you know, I mean, my nose is broken. Uh, <coughs> Uh, but they they allowed me to continue. They asked me if I would continue. So your nose is broken. I go. <laughs> there was a funny story real fast because Joe McCarthy, the big referee, he puts it in his book. So I never believed nose bone into the brain. That's a it's a it's a myth, you know. But somebody told me on the the day of the fight or the day before. I don't remember anybody. I said, Yeah, boss, you're right. But if the nose is already broke and then they hit it, then it might go into your brain. And I go, Okay, whatever. But then I'm in the fight and my nose is broke. And they said, do you want to continue? And I look at John God. I said, do you believe that stuff? And the nose one hit to the brain? And he goes, no. I go, okay, have it. I'll fight. You know, so then I kept fighting. And uh, then I slowly but surely start taking the fight over. And I won with the, my split decision. It was a very close fight. But the way he bashed my head in, and he was such a freak athlete, such a strong guy. I never felt any strength like that. I mean, he got in a car accident. He flew out of his window and his uh, SUV landed on him. And he lit on the engine part, he just pushed it off. And his whole head was under the stage. He walked away. I mean, it's a, he had a staph infection. You know, when you talk about snus, the tobacco, you know, yeah. that that of a hole. If I would, he, you could have put that in his chest. And if you put a shirt on it, you could not see it. That's, you, you just Google it. Uh, Kevin Redelman staph infection. You have no clue what you're going to see. I mean, he survived everything. And then he dies of pneumonia, you see. So mm. that was, uh, that was very hard. But that was a, that was a tough fight because I lost the contact lens and I had minus five and a half. So it's really bad eyesight. Like that means I have to fight with contacts because I can't see where you're looking because that's how blind I was, you know? And then that, that contact I lost, the other eye filled up with blood. I was swallowing my own blood. The whole, I got nausea in the corner. I tried to put my fingers in my throat to throw out the blood. So that was very annoying while you're fighting, swallowing your own blood the whole time. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, think I, Samurai can, I don't think we can yeah, quite imagine that. Uh, things I've never experienced, likely never. Yeah. Would, so. 
Yeah, it's a um, different thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I, gear shift, what does a fighter have to say about keeping the peace, about maintaining peace and peace in your life and peace um, around others? It's just something that uh, hearing you talk just felt inspired to uh, to ask you, because I know we want to spend a lot of time talking about your faith and how your faith has transformed you. But uh, I thought it'd be a good start just talking about um, peace in general and how you maintain that internally and how you maintain that externally. It's, you know, it's, it's a daily struggle. It's a daily work, you know, to, to completely be peaceful, right? To not get aggravated by stupid stuff, you know, not like you want to fight. That that kind of anger should never be there. Five times in your life, that, should, that you're really angry and throw things, that's stupid. <clears throat> that's letting your emotions control yourself. Once I get back to the faith, I realized, okay, we got to, you know, the computer, uh, the, the, the rational appetizer, you know, how everything works. The, the senses coming in and the cogitative power and how you send it over. I mean, all that stuff, once you start learning about it, you, you kind of fi- figure out how to stop it immediately. And that's what the senses, when the senses come in, you know, that's where you stop things like uh, the pornography or whatever. Uh, the, you, you click on the picture, right? Oh, you yeah. girl in the bikini. You should see what she looks like now. Oh, we're freaking high guys, twerk. You know, we're on there. So, But once I start cleaning up that stuff, because it's stuff that you don't need. It's stuff that is not going to make you smarter or mentally stronger, and it certainly is not going to to steal you towards God, you know? And I always ask myself now, before I do something or click on something or say something, I say, is this what I'm about to do? It's going to make me mentally stronger or smarter. And for me, it's also bring me closer to God, right? That should officially be the first one. But if you keep it under our life stage, if it doesn't make you smarter and mentally stronger, why would you do it? What do you gain? I was doing an, um, an, uh, a, a, a class, a, a streaming class when the COVID broke out. And I did it with a student of mine, a female student, so that people around the world, because nobody could go to a gym, and then we could still work out. They could train out, uh, train with us. We did it in the morning, so that's good for Europe as well, so in the evening. And then the lady with me, because they could make sure that all the other ladies see, hey, she can do it, so I can do it. So we, we pulled both people in. And then we, on a Saturday, we'll do Q&A. And, and one of the questions, we she's writing down the question. Suddenly I see her looking weird and I'm looking at the screen and this guy asks, hey, what color panties are you wearing? And she's asking her. And so I, I read that question out loud. I go, well, I, so I asked him, I said, what would you gain by having that information? Let's say she says red. Now what did you gain? Did you get smarter? Did you get mentally stronger? What? Give me one thing that you can gain by it. And there is nothing. The only thing that can is like a stupid thing. Maybe you're going to use it for masturbation or something, but it's never good, right? So, and and that sets people to think because, and if you really trade your life like that now, and I try to catch, I try to catch as many as I can. I'm just saying that before. And everything, most of the time, it's, it's all in the head. It's, I always been about peace, even before the faith. I was a bouncer. I was very well known because they wanted me as a bouncer, not because I could fight. That was great to have, but I'm good with people. From the 10 situations, normally nine times is a fight with me, maybe one time. Because I just break things down. I go, hey, why do you do? Oh, you looked at my wife. He looked at your wife. Did you talk to her? No. Okay, did he say anything? Make it vulgar moment? Did he do anything? No. I said, dude, that's a compliment. I mean, imagine he looks at your wife and he goes, oh, he does that. You, you like that? He goes, yeah, yeah, kind of well. I said, dude, if he, if he overstepped his boundaries, yeah, you can be angry. And he goes, yeah, stupid. And then I will give them both a beer or whatever they would drink. And then yeah, shake hands and we go again. You see, and I've always been like that. And, and, mm. and the rule from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, I don't yeah. consider my great power, but on the street, I do. You know, if it is a fight hand-to-hand, 
chance you're going to win is going to be very low. And it's not to stick a feather on my butt. Every, every professional fighter, every professional, Amanda Nunes, the world champion, I think she will torture to, to, to guys. They have no chance. So the ladies are also very dangerous. So everybody can do this. But, you know, there's one in how many? 10,000 really doing professional fighting? You know, if you meet a professional fighter. So if you just live like that, you know, and you be a good person inside and out. And thankfully, I've always been that. That's why it's so unfortunate for me with John Jones to see these things happening. And I know it's alcohol, you know, it's that's personality, yeah. although alcohol intensifies certain things. You know, it's I, I think you're only a world champion you if you got your life under control in, in and outside the cage or the ring, wherever you're fighting. I think you should be an example. Whatever you receive as a gift, you have to give as a gift, right? That's what the Bible says. We have to do that. And why why be angry? Why why not show the people that were completely different? They were good people, you know, like the things with Donald McGregor now, certain things, you know, I've always been defending him, and I, but that, that's certain things I can't defend anymore, you know. Once mm-hmm. you start attacking the wife, and I go, sorry, I'm out, dude. I'm like, hey, listen, still a big fan, but I'm not going to defend that. I can't defend it anymore. It's just wrong, and he knows it's wrong, you know, but that's a very rare occasion, and that's giving somebody $300 million at 30 years of age I mean, I would have been completely out of control if I had that money yeah. when I was that. You see, so oh, it's easy for us to point fingers at people and to say, "Oh, you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that." Look at yourself. Well, cast the first stone, right? <laughs> That's literally what people should think because we're all make mistakes, just on different levels. But it's all mistakes. A, a big line that I always use is like, "Doing a, a small good thing is still doing good. Doing a small evil thing is still doing evil." Just think like that. So it doesn't matter what you do. If it's a little tiny thing, I only stole a buck, it's still evil. It's not good. Small good thing is always good. So why don't you lean to that side, you know, because then you're always happy. Yeah. Yeah, build yourself up uh, and build others up around you. I mean, and it's funny because we're mentioning Conor McGregor, and I don't want to pick on him exclusively, but... but I will say too that it's hurt his performance in the ring even, you know, like even if even if he hadn't even if there were no negative consequences in his life, otherwise, like he's lost his focus kind of as an athlete, like in that, in that respect. And, and unfortunately it's, it's had consequences for his, his game. And yeah. No, that's, that's, that's literally the devil. That's money. You know, yeah. once you stuff people over floating and money, you buy a plane, you buy a yacht, you buy a thing, you don't have to do anything. Hey, make me a sandwich. And they make a sandwich. They got to cook it at home. You don't have to do anything anymore. That is not a fighter. You didn't get there like that. You were a bricklayer. That's what your profession was before. You're training hard, hard. You got to go Rocky style. Go back. Go to Russia, you know, and go train there with some crazy freaking guys. Get you and make your own sandwich. Get your own stuff. Do everything yourself. Go back to your roots. That's what you need to do. I mean, it's very, who said it? It's very hard to become a world champion, to stay a world champion when you sleep uh, sleep in silk sheets and wear silk (laughs) underwear. I mean, that's yeah. some famous fighter said that one time, and, and it's 100% true. It becomes too easy. Fighting is not easy. You need the suffering, guys. Suffering comes back in everything. But the yeah. suffering, we we all we should suffer for the things that get us in heaven, but we all suffer for the things that we want to pursue here on earth. It's the wildest yeah. thing if you think about it. You know? So uh, hopefully that's uh, going to change. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear you comment, too. On, you, you know, you've, you've done training for years and years and years. How, what would you say to guys who are like they're trying to change their life? Whether that's working out more, whether that's eating better, whether that's getting up earlier in the morning, uh, just just trying to improve themselves in those concrete ways. And yet, 
they find that they'll maybe do it for a week or two and they fall off the bandwagon or whatever. And they find they find it a struggle to motivate themselves to do those hard things to kind of inflict that suffering. Like maybe at first they get all excited and they, and they can give them a, enough juice for a couple of weeks of this, but then they fall off the bandwagon. Like, what would you say to somebody who struggles with that motivation, that, that drive to discipline themselves? It's a feminine. People have come being, become effeminate. You know, there's an attachment to pleasure, unwillingness to suffer. That's what literally the attachment is for effeminate. And, and that's, that's what Thomas Aquinas at least said, and he's smarter yeah. than I, I can tell you that. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you got to tell yourself, this is what I always say to myself. When you tell yourself, so now let's take God out of the equation. The next person in line who's the most important person in the world is you. You can never lie to yourself. You should never lie to yourself. Because the more you lie to yourself, the weaker you become. That's is how, how vices work. You know what they say? Um, they say, oh, uh, I, I suffer because I sin. I go, that's completely backwards. No, no, you sin because you don't want to suffer. That's what the real reason wow. is. That's why, oh, I want to drink something, you know. No, saying no to these drinks, that is suffering for you at that moment. That, you know, that's how you get stronger. And, and, and I had the same reaction as you because I had Scott Hahn. I was in his class at the <coughs> Franciscan University of Steubenville, and he dropped that line. I go, dude, that's everything. So I have that <laughs> in my thoughts now because yeah. it's a big one, you know, because we all suffer for the things that we want to pursue here on earth, but not to gain eternal happiness. So saying no to a lot of things, we do it again. We do it for that kind of stuff. But the more you say no, the stronger you get. And the easier mm. it becomes to say no. The more you give in, the weaker you become. So yeah, yeah. that's a vice. Vice makes you weaker. Virtue makes you stronger, right? Virtue building of good habits. Now, my whole, my whole life is before the faith was already around good habits. I'm very good. Like in 2015, May 2015, I started doing a daily rosary. How mm -hmm. many times have you missed, boss? None. Okay. And the morning I wake up, I do my stretching routines and prayers, everything like an hour, 15 minutes in every morning. How many times you missed? None. I just... Once I have a habit, I'm not going to break the habit. The stretching, maybe I might leave out one time because I have an injury and I can't do it. Or for the rest, I will always do it. And once you break a habit, then the next time when you break a habit again, it becomes a normal thing. It, it's very easy because it goes both ways. The way I explain it to um, to people is like I do these talks for these kids uh, that they, when they go from high school to college or university or wherever they go or to, to their job and what kind of to expect. And the first thing I always say is who woke up this morning? hit this alarm clock, hit the snooze button, mm. 10 minutes later, hit the snooze button, 10 minutes hit the snooze button, and I did it like six six times in a row. And 95% of the hands go up. I said, that's a bad habit. And it's a very stupid habit too. I mean, that last hour, you didn't really sleep anymore. You wake up and it's, it's a stupid thing. Smart thing would be to set an alarm clock an hour later and tell yourself before you go to sleep, and here we go, and you should be the most important person in the world. If you treat yourself like you don't lie to yourself, you better do what you say. That's how I train myself. If I say today I'm going to do 12 rounds on the back, I will do 12 rounds on the back, whatever it takes, because I told myself, and otherwise in the evening, I can't look at myself in the mirror because I see a loser who didn't do what he was saying that he said he was going to do. And that's with these people also. You, you tell yourself before you go to sleep, tomorrow morning, the way the alarm clock goes, I sit up and just walk out of bed. And sure, that might be hard the first time, second time, third time. And suddenly after four or five times, it becomes normal. A week, two weeks in, it's normal. You switch the bad habit into a good habit. But yeah. as, as you can attain a good habit, you can also lose it again. 
Maybe don't do it one time, and then you do it a second time, or maybe two times in a row. You see, that's that's addiction. That's how drinking works, right? That's right. How many times I have a drinking problem? You know, I don't. I simply don't drink. But I know that if I, for instance, this weekend I would drink one beer, the next weekend I say, oh, I can do another beer because it worked last weekend, and then yeah. the third time or fourth time I get two beers, and then I feel a little buzz, you know, and then I say, oh well, but but I had it under control last week. So I see, and that's where the third beer comes. And boom, you're full into drinking again. That's how it goes. That's how it goes with everything in life. You know, it's just simple saying no will make you stronger. Because again, there we go. If I say no to the alcohol, it makes me stronger. And knowing myself that it will make me stronger, I rather say no. And especially yeah. me, because now I'm very devout. So if I drink too much, and thank for this last year, my birthday in February, so I, I don't, but I go to confession. And since I already confessed that sense a sin a bunch of times, I, I don't like to go to confession and to, to confess that sense. It's a stupid thing to do. So I don't want to do it. So if I tell myself, well, I'm going to suffer anyway, whether it's I'm going to confess, or I'm going to wake up for the hangover, whatever it is, you're going to suffer anyway. But saying no from all these choices is going to make me stronger. Then I rather say no. And that's yeah. how I treat pretty much everything. I love that. That is so yeah. great. <laughs> I do too. Yeah, yeah. Good. I've been a lot of brainstorming to get in this crazy mind of me to, to change me from all my craziness. I've been, I got ADHD. I mean, you have no clue what goes on. It's very hard for me to focus. And, and I just have to drill. I have to memorize things every single day. I keep my mind constantly busy because I, otherwise I'm all over the place. Yeah. Well, can we talk a little bit about your reversion to the faith? I think you've mentioned, you know, praying the rosary every day. I know that you pray uh, in Latin also, you know, yeah, I've, in different interviews of yours or commentaries, Father Ripperger and Father, or and Kevin James and these individuals helped you. Um, we'd love to hear your story uh, just directly from you about what brought you back to the faith and how it's become so much a, a pivotal part of your life. Okay, so I, I got to backtrack a little bit. There's a few things that happened in my life. Um, first of all, I was taking insane amounts of medication when I was a kid. Hmm. Uh, I remember 45 pills a day, three times 15. That's for my asthma and for my eczema, for everything. I take a lot of bad stuff, cortisone. Yeah. Um, so I, and it affected my memory. And we found that out because I had to go to a school. It was the lowest school ever. And then they realized, oh, it was the medication. We stopped the medication. And then a year later, I did it again. I went to the highest school. So it was like a complete difference. But anyway, I, I don't remember a lot when I was before I was 12 years old. But there's one thing that always stuck out with me. And it was when I was 10 years old. And I was sitting in the class in fourth grade in Holland, that is. And I was staring outside the window and looking at a tree. And I can till this day, you can bring me to that school. I know what, what the chair was and what tree it was. I know everything still. And I've never been back there. But it's very vivid in my mind. And I remember the teachers trying to get a hold of me and uh, because I heard the, class, heard the class laugh. And Ruth and Ruth, and suddenly he's screaming. Ruth, they go, what? And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at that tree. He said, what about that tree? I said, where does it come from? And he goes, like, they planted it there, idiot. And I go, yeah, I understand that. But, you know, the tree before, the tree before, the tree before. If you go back, where do trees come from? And of course, you looked at me like I was a Colombian idiot, but that was a weird thing. It was like literally God planting a seed in my head. Don't worry about it. It's like about 40 years from now, we'll come back. <laughs> Something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> yeah. So then in 2006, I was drinking heavy. And that's when actually I, I, I took another fight after seven years of not competing because I realized if I took the fight, it would force me to stop drinking. Mm. And, and, and thankfully that worked out. But just before that, I was just drinking a lot. And I'm a happy drunk. Yeah, I'm dancing with the kids. I'm doing kids. But still, being a happy drunk, you're drunk. You're not a father. You're not a husband. You're not a, a good person. You're not a good mm. guy. You know, you have to get yourself under control. Temperance, you know, I never had that. 
Um, and I think there was a spirit in the home there, a, a woman who passed away. And, and I think she had it out on me later on when I look back on it, it was because I was the one who was drinking. And she said, hey, listen, you got an, you got a, you're an idiot because you have a family here. Stop the stupid drinking. And she would attack me in the middle of the night in my bed. And it would be, it would be go, boop, I would wake up and then I, I could look around and there was nothing, but something was holding me down. And I, I, I tried to look and I could see because I couldn't move. I only could move my face and I could see and I could smell. I could do all these things, but I could not move. And the only way to get out of it was getting mentally very aggressive. And then it's just mind over matter. And then I was out again because otherwise I would suffocate. It felt like I couldn't breathe anymore. So that's how heavy it was. And that happened a whole bunch of times. And I went to the restroom one time and I'm sitting and I see my wife passing because I always sit because I like to turn the light on if I have to pee, you know, so it's easier. I can sit there, I can still in the sleep. And I see my wife walking. So I think, oh, she's going to get a water at the, at the kitchen, at the kitchen. And then when I went to bake, my wife was in the bed. So I remember taking the gun, go to the house and there's nobody in the house. Then the big one came, was in the, uh, I became home around 9.30 at night. And uh, and I told my my family when I opened the door, I felt somebody was in the house. And I said, "Just stay here. Get your phone out. Dial nine one one. Don't press send yet. If you hear something, just press." I said, "But don't worry because I know where where everything is. I will be okay." I said, "But then just don't come in." And I I walked into the house, and there was an uh, there was an open kitchen on one side, and there was a a, a, a dining area here, and there was a, a wall in the middle, and in the back there was the kitchen. And the kitchen had an entrance to the dining area. And in front of the dining area, instead of a door, there would hang a thick curtain in the doorpost. <clears throat> now, I thought that person was on this side of the wall that we had. So I started walking here, making a lot of noise, hoping that he would do this. And then I make a U-turn. I got him, you know. So I start doing that. And suddenly I started sprinting. I come around the corner and that curtain, the thick curtain flies up against the ceiling. So somebody ran through it, right? So I kept sprinting. There was nobody in the home. And I was like, that was, I mean, it was, it was not moving. It was whoop, up against the wall, against the ceiling. So that was a, a big thing. Then I started challenging this ghost at 3 a.m. at night. I had no clue. I wasn't in the faith that 3 p.m. was when Jesus passed and 3 a.m. is when the demonic activity is the highest. But somehow I knew. And I was standing there at that, store, uh, at that spot where the dining room area was because it was always cold there and it was a weird smell. And I just challenged it there for 45 minutes. Father Ripka later told me you shouldn't have done that, but only you, boss, he said, mm. you can do it. And it works, you know, it's, I, she didn't come back. Then we moved from that house, we moved to this house uh, because I just fought, made some money and I wanted a house with a pool. And it was like literally a quarter mile of the street. And uh, the first night uh, went and my, I asked my daughters how it was. And my oldest daughter, she slept upstairs. I said, how was it upstairs? And she said, oh, nice. I said, I just had a visit from a, uh, two kids. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? Spirits? And she goes, yeah. What, what do you mean? Boys, girls? She says, boys, two boys. I said, what age? Oh, 16, 17 years old. I go, well, you're not freaking out. She says, no, no, they were nice. And I just asked them to leave me alone. One kept playing and pushing on the bed the whole time. But after I told him that I want to go to sleep, he let me alone. So I'm looking at my wife. I go like, this is crazy. So I go to the computer and I hit if something ever happened in my house. And the first link comes up in 2001. Um, Christmas, four kids, a girl and three boys, they lost control here and they throw through the wall, through my wall. Now I'm walking outside, I see where they repaired the wall. And from the four kids, two died, two boys, 16 and 17 years old. Hmm. So all these things, 
are, are happening with me, the attack and, the, you know, the, the, the curtain flying and the person seen walking and my whole family saw the person, couldn't know what she described, what she looked like, and then this on top of it. So that was all happening. And then in 2014, <coughs> excuse me, I was um, doing a movie on the set that this guy, Leo Severino, came. And he's a very good theologian, a very smart yeah. guy. Uh, he's like the right-hand man of, of, of Father Ripperger. They, they're they really good friends. And and he uh, and, and, and a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you sit in on, he's going to do a, a conference, like a 30-minute talk. We're sitting outside there at the Wynn Hotel. We're in a cabana with an air conditioning. You can smoke a cigar, drink a Coke. Why wouldn't you? I go, sure, I sit in. And then Leo came in and he started talking about the leaf fell from the tree. He says, that leaf just reached its end destination. He says, let's go back up, backtrack that leaf. And it goes back to the branch and it goes back to the tree before, the tree before, the tree before. And I'm sitting there and I go, I, I, I know this story from Stemmer. You know, and then I realized that not at that moment, that was when I was 10 years old, the tree before, the tree before. So when Leo started backtracking and then getting eventually to a solid proof of the very existence of God, that was it for me. Now I knew, okay, this is not this is not an accident. This is not one cell. This somebody designed this. You know, yeah. and once you are there, somebody designed this. Well, then God is an easy step, right? Yeah. So that's how it started. That's how I got back. And then my wife got in, and it, it was everything just started falling together. Wow. Well, wow. <laughs> that, that is an interesting story. So, so, so ghosts played a role in your conversion. Uh, that that is that is that is a unique conversion story. You should you should tell that one on EWTN. Um. <laughs> oh, dude, it was it was very scary. It was very scary. Yeah. It was yeah. so scary that I challenged it because I didn't want it anymore. I, because also when it, it, the, the would attack me and then I uh, and then I was gone. I go okay. I'm going to go to sleep now. Do it again. Now I want you to come back in because now I'm going to be ready for you. I somehow I thought she did it at the moment that I was the weakest. You know, when I go like, give me a yeah. chance, give me a chance. Yeah. So that's why I challenged it also. Bring it down to my level, make it physical. You know, I would love to fight you. If you have the balls, you know, I started really talking like that. I was <laughs> so aggressive. Wow. Uh, a punching crap you're doing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I needed so, to get so out of there. So what did that do for your your faith? I mean, like, what, so you're a guy who's not practicing any kind of faith at that point. Like, what did that kind of tell you about, like, like how did that, impact you in your journey to faith well you know if you if you know there's that evil you know there's that good then everything yeah, has to right. be right yeah and so yeah. i knew right away that if i would have said at that moment maybe simply jesus it would have been gone you see but i didn't know at the time so once you see the yeah. other side and feel the other side and literally physically think see things moving it's you know you realize this is not it guys this life is not it I mean, if you really think about it, it's like, it, and it's hard. It's, I'm always telling people, we all care. We were just talking about about the things on, on, on ourselves, you know, money, fame, looking good, whatever it is, we focus on that, <clears throat> but we don't focus for eternal happiness in heaven. And, and the, the only reason it can be is because we don't believe heaven is real. That can yeah. be the only reason. Because if you, if you wake up, I always say this, imagine you wake up and boom, Jesus stands in your room and he says, hey, boss, remember, don't go there. And he shows hell, like Lady Fatima did, right? Yeah. And but you know, you want to go there, boom. You think there will be any violence in the world? A hundred percent guarantee everybody would stop. Nobody wants to go there. You see? But to to have that faith, why do you think? I always say to people, why do you think it's in the Bible? Why do you say why does he say a mustard seed? 
the size of faith would move. Yeah. You can't move mountains. Why do you? I'm looking at this. <clears throat> the apostles, they saw him walk on water. They saw him feed people, thousands of people with two loaves of, a few loaves of fishes. Then when it was the second time needed, you know, they didn't even remember the first time. Walking on water, raising people, three people from the dead. Uh, cure, cure the lepers, the sea, the blind, the, everything. He does everything. Then he has 70 disciples, seven zero. He sends them out in the world, you know, go heal any diseases. They come back like, what? This is crazy. We were also able to drive our demons. Then they see him for 40 days after he's been crucified and died, and they still didn't believe it. Think mm, yeah. about that. That's when the Holy Spirit jumped in, and then she says, "Okay, Bob, 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 slapping him around. Let's wake up. Let's get some <laughs> here. Speak some languages. You know, start evangelizing." And that's when, okay, now we got it. But I mean, all that had to happen in order for them to believe. Well, he, they see him cure people, walk on water. We didn't see that. Yeah. I'm very fortunate because I've been physically attacked, and I see these things. So for me, it's much easier because I know it's there. It happened to me. You see, yeah. so. Yeah, that's what people have to think. We all have our doubts. Trust me. They're all of our doubts. And that's how it works, you know. And everything is hard. And even praying and doing every every single day, that's suffering sometimes. Sometimes there are days that you don't have the time. I have to wake up. If I go to, uh, to Europe, well, the whole thing messes you up. It's nine hours ahead. I mean, so nighttime is daytime for me. It's a freaking nightmare. But I'm still waking up an hour and a half before to go through my entire routine that I always do. You see, sometimes that's, that's right. suffering. But you do it. Just keep doing it. Building a good habit. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So do you find that you're able to evangelize a little bit in the UFC now that you've had this huge um, conversion? I mean, I know that it, it was kind of past your, your, your glory time as, as, a, as a fighter, but you're still a coach and you're still you know, actively involved. You just mentioned a few weeks ago uh, uh, bringing your you know, close friend into the UFC Hall of Fame. Uh, do you feel like your example, or do you actually get to have conversations with uh, other men about your faith? I think there's a lot of fighters are have the faith. Uh, a lot of Christians, at least. Uh, Stephen Miocic comes up with a rosary. Um, Tyson Fury comes up with a big rosary. He's very devout Catholic as well. Yeah. You know, because it, it, that saved his life. He was on a path to destruction. And look at him now. I mean, he became a world yeah. champion. He's probably one of the best boxers there is now. I mean, so, yeah, there was a lot of people, Vito Belfort, Chris Whiteman. I mean, there's a lot of Christians out there who are promoting it. Uh, what I really liked was Rose Nama Yunus when she fought Joanna J. Dracic and she was staring it down. And then later on, you, she was mumbling something, Rose. And they asked what she was doing. She was doing the Lord's Prayer while this girl was trying to intimidate her. She was just helping our father God. Uh, yeah, uh -huh. I mean... So, uh, yeah, I think more and more people, because, you know, as a fighter, you also realize it's... We all have egos, you know? But you're not the one in control. There's nothing you can do without him. And if you, once you realize that, you know, if I look back on my life and the moments I wanted to quit in the fight and then this voice talking to me, no, 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 no. Just keep hanging in there. It's going to be okay. You know, yeah, and I always, thankfully, listen to the quiet voice, not to the guy who goes, guy, knock about now, knock about now. There's this really annoying guy and there's the guy who calms, you know? And But everything, accidents I had and the way I survived accidents, I get insanity, like crashing, flying over a crash barrier, no roof, no seat belt, staying in the car. How is that possible? Missing every tree on the way down, upside down in the water, my friend. While he flew through the car, I put him in my guard. I mean, how, how is that going slow motion? I mean, upside down in the water, water comes in. My friend is knocked out. I have to kick the windows out, pull him out, water. I mean, I had a scratch, a scratch. <laughs> People get running down and say, how is this possible? You see, and, and I have a bunch of those examples that you go like, man, it had to be intervened. Uh, 
uh, invention. Uh, something had to happen there, you know, that uh, made sure that I was okay. It was not my time yet. That's what I believe. And now I better use this time, you know, and it's if we can get people in there. But the thing that I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person, you know, on the street and quoting Bible verses and doing all that stuff because it steers people away because it makes you look like you're crazy. You know, the big ones, I know, like, you know, when people say, oh, you, but in my talks, I talk about a gun. You need, if you can't have physical uh, skills, you need a gun to protect your family. That's what a guy should do. Yo, but it's not in the Bible. It's actually in the Bible. Yeah, not a gun, but you know, Luke 22, 36. You see those quotes, I remember. Let him who has no sword sell his mantle and buy one. Why would you say, why do you think it's in the Bible? Because you have to protect your family. That's what the real man does. You're not playing with Play-Doh or not pet, shedding, petting ponies or hugging trees. No, face your freaking problems. Yeah. You know, and make sure you're ready for everything out there. Uh, but unfortunately, everything is becoming effeminate. You know, yeah. uh, we, we can't handle resistance anymore. Yeah. Absolutely not. We we just that's why when you ask, you know, how it's uh, people they they build up a habit, but then they do it for like a week and then it's gone again. You just have to do it. I, I have this long training device that I invented, right? <clears throat> that trains your breathing muscles. Mm. Works really well. I've been I started doing that in May uh, 2018. Mm. And I might have missed like 40 times or 30 times due to traveling. And that's something because it's not mental and everything. I'll but for the rest, I've been doing it every single day, you know, and it's just building a habit. Now, these people, because it takes four minutes a day, it will cure you from your asthma, your COPD. It will take it 70% away or more. You can read wow. every review and they all say the same thing. But you have to do it every day. It takes about uh, four minutes. Oh, four minutes, I can do it. Everybody hooks off within a week because yeah. that four minutes already becomes too much because yeah. it's a workout. You're working out your breathing muscles. You start, you might sweat from it because it's a hard work. There's people buying it now for their apps who could never get apps. And now they're suddenly getting apps. Huh. You see, so, but four minutes and you can't bulk it up. I said, why don't you do it for one month straight? You know, and now I'm saying the people for asthma and COPD, if, if you buy it for asthma or COPD and you do it one month and I'm going to need to see the videos, you're doing it every day, like time lapses, because otherwise you're going to tell me you did it, but you didn't do it because I know, because if you do do it, it's going to be 70% or God uh, or more God. And if not, I'm going to give you your money back. That's my guarantee. But I need to see it. Nobody has held me up on that offer. Nobody yet. And I'm saying wow. it all the time. Now, the guys who are doing it, all of them, their asthma is gone. Always anxiety, COPD. I mean, it's just building a habit. Amen. Yeah, the, the uh, <clears throat> discipline that you've brought to a lot of these habits that you keep talking about, um, you know, as you mentioned, Thomas Aquinas talks about how how habits are really what create virtue, and and obviously you, your training has as a fighter has taught you the discipline that can really uh, translate to these spiritual disciplines. But I'm just wondering, is there any other way your kind of your career as a fighter? Um, you've been in some movies, things like that. Um, has, your, has any of the things that you've learned from these kind of things that you've done for a living translated to your faith or vice versa? Has your faith translated to the way you approach these um, other things that you do in life? Yeah, you know, everything started with me with being sick and in bed. <clears throat> you know, that's where I get my habits from, you know, being in bed. And it might, might, I need to go down a flight of stairs to go to the restroom. So if I want to go to the restroom, well, that's going to take us 45 minutes. If an asthma attack 
or I'm going to be ready to get ready now. And I had to prepare mentally, but I had to do it because I have to go to the restroom. You see, so you're just forced to do certain things. Now I realize going back, it's all been given to me for a reason. That's mm-hmm. why I had it. That's why I had these adversities. That's why it's so easy for me to have habits, 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 because that was I, I was building those habits as a kid already. And then I trans, translated that to fighting. Hey, it works in transfer. And then when the faith came, oh, man, I better believe I went to that. I go crazy. You know, like my wife, she started laughing when I came back and I said, I want to go back to the faith. And she goes, eh, whatever, because she knows I'm ADHD. That's six weeks max. And then it's over. But she saw me keep more. I was doing more and more and more. And she saw me change. Then I asked her if she wanted to marry for the church. The third time we we're going to get married, this time for the Catholic Church. You know, and then another great thing, great, because she always said that, oh, I don't need to go to church. I'm a good person. You know, I'll go to heaven. That was her state take. And uh, and the day I mentioned, it was on the Sunday that I wanted to go marry her again for the church. And the next day I couldn't get a hold of her. And uh, when she called me back, I said, where were you? And she was a daily mass. I go, what do you mean? You say, you want to get married, right? I just signed up for RCIA classes, she said, because I, I was baptized, but I didn't do my confirmation. I mean, I, what what had all conversations for me, it was immediately accepted by her. <clears throat> and she started following the faith. And now we're both, in, we're both in it. So it's really amazing. I just really lucked out in that area as well. So, yeah, everything started with my diseases, and I brought it over to fighting, and I just have that same military-style routine with habits that I don't break, and I apply that to the faith. I apply that actually to everything, everything that I do. Everything that I can do now, I do now. If I'm three weeks, I have a commentating job with fighters. Most of the time, if I have the schedule now from all the fighters, tomorrow I will already be prepared because I don't know what's going to happen in those three weeks. Maybe something's going to come up. Something bad's going to happen. I got to figure it out. I better, if I can make it now already, I have the time for it. Why don't I do it now? See, those are habits that I created and I live by and they always help me. So yeah. once they keep helping, stay helping. I just keep doing it. <clears throat> I love it. That kind of that disability in your childhood ended up making you so much stronger. Like, I know a lot of people who have, you know, like they're weak as a child or whatever, had some childhood illness. A lot of people use that as an excuse to yeah. sit on the sidelines or just kind of check out of life. Um, you know, oh, well, I have this or I have that. Yeah, so, and, and so I can't, you know, yeah. Yeah. That strength of will um, sounds like it's really like powered you through your whole life and is, is starting, starting when you were very young until now. So we used to push people, like a, a, a close person that I know is a, a, addiction. There used to be heroin and that's drinking and everything. And he goes to rehab again. And yeah, but at rehab, they said I was going to get out uh, in, uh, in one week, but they took after five days, they took me out. Boom. That's an excuse again to start drinking. Yeah. <clears throat> I said, are you serious? I say, you're doing it. You're putting, why do you blame it on other people? As long as you can see that you are the person doing it, you didn't hit rock bottom. You know, you need to understand you are the one putting the alcohol in your face. <laughs> if you do that, it's not good. Don't blame it on other people. I can make a thousand excuses, yeah. you see, but that's that's how people are now, finding excuses to, to steer away from it. I don't want to do this. It's annoying. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, everybody can do it. Everybody with addictions, they get, did all right, and who got rid of the addiction or, or alcohol, yeah, so all addictions, they already went through it. They know how to do it. So mm-hmm. if you can do it with that, you can do this with everything else. It all applies. It's the same method applies to everything in life. Just, you know, that's why I always say, don't tell yourself that you're going to do something 
and then don't do it because now you let the most important person down in the world, which yeah. is you. And if you start treating your life like that, like for instance, with me, like I said, if I say 12 rounds and I don't do 12 rounds, I'm brushing my teeth. I can't look at myself in the mirror. I just brainwash myself like that. Loser. That's what I see. I don't even want to look at myself. And I don't like that feeling. So I just do the 12 freaking rounds. <laughs> I do what I say I'm going to do. That's the only way yeah. to do it. Yeah. Oh, boss. Well, I appreciate it. I know Sam and I are both grateful for being here. Where can people learn more about you? You know, as we're finishing this up, I want to make sure that we get things in the show notes for uh, our men and, and women even that are listening to, uh, you know, learn more about you, see what you're actively involved in, you know, websites, YouTube channels, you know, what are you pitching and what can we do to help out? Well, Facebook, Boss Rutten, you know, the O2 trainer, the long training device, which helps you with everything because everybody's focusing. The survival rule of three, I leave it like that. It's an average okay. human being can go three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without oxygen. And they all focus on the food and the drinking. Nobody focuses on the number one priority. Imagine you're breathing. 95% of the people out there breathe wrong. Breathe yeah. like this. Yeah, that difference, four to six of these breaths, is the same as one belly breath. You just change that, and with that device that I have, you will change that immediately. They start breathing using your core. Everything's good. So that's that's the, the biggest thing I'm focusing on right now. Pass through to Facebook. But, you know, I did the, the Exodus 90. I did, we did it twice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized I was waiting, wasting a lot of time on the internet. And so I, I, you know, I post here and there, but I'm not that guy. Hey, man, get ready for a workout. Uh, you don't see that anymore. So yeah. I post once every couple of days. I sure. see something funny that I post. So, you know, and if I have to announce something, you go to Instagram, Bossroot and MMA. Most of the time I'll post it there because that's apparently right now, see, I don't even know is the, the most watched site, uh, Instagram, yeah. from everything, from Twitter or Facebook, it's, they say Instagram. So that's why I do a TikTok, whatever. <laughs> I don't even want to go there because if I open an account like that, Amen. it's going to get pulled. Because you, once you start and you're getting likes, it's kind of feeding you. You need it. And then you yep. want that. It's an again. addiction. So I go, and hundred percent is, yeah, absolutely. And, you, and you're doing some stuff with uh, some other organizations like uh, Karate Combat. Now, the Karate Combat, yeah. Go to karate.com. It's a really cool concept. You have like a, a Olympic level karate guys fighting full contact in a pit, like especially designed really badass pit. We do it with a big green screen. So we we travel back in time. We go into future. We, I mean, we can project anything we want in the background. And it's, it's really cool to see. There's really great rules. It's great for families because MMA, I can understand. Parents are not going to say to a 10-year-old, okay, watch the fight. But karate, <laughs> that's a different story. Everybody knows karate. So karate.com, it's free. So why wouldn't you? Go over there and check it out. Uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And I love the respect among these guys. It's such a big difference when you see they they don't you don't see the fake blow-ups in karate. Yeah. Let me say that. It's all about respect and discipline. And I love that. Amen. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I'm very grateful for getting to know you and getting to hear you uh, today. You're in our prayers. And uh, you know, as we like to end every episode, Sam. Be a man, be a saint. Be a man, be a saint. It takes a, it takes a strong person to be a saint because that person has all these temptations under control. Think about that. That's my goal, but it's very hard to attain. That I do know. <laughs> to yeah, do it yeah. perfect. But, you know, it's a great goal to have. Yeah. Well, God bless you, boss. It's been, it's been great having you on. A real honor. And uh, yeah. just thanks for inspiring us today. Amen. You're very welcome. And thank you for spreading the love. That's what we're doing. 
Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's good meeting you. Nice meeting you. All right, God bless. <clears throat>